Are we ready? I didn't know there was going to be quite a spread in there. I would have stopped 15 minutes sooner <laughs> and, and have given us 30 minutes to, to feast. <clears throat> thank you so very much. And thank you so much for your hospitality. I've really uh, enjoyed my time here uh, with you. And I am going to slow down a little. I realized I picked up the pace and started going pretty quickly uh, there, and it's because I have way too much uh, to cover. And I, I'll, I'll get back to you in just a second. Um, and with that in mind, uh, you might want to ignore the titles that are on this, because I might not follow this religiously, if that's okay. Um, I don't want to rush through and miss out on some very important things. There are some things that I think that are really important to cover, uh, more so than the other things, and I want to make sure we cover those. But also, I don't want to, if you're looking ahead and you're thinking, he's never going to get to the sacraments ever, um, then ask me about the sacraments. I mean, stop me at any point, and, and what we'll do is we'll make sure whatever, whatever questions you have about worship, there'll be ample time for you to bring them and ask them, and we can discuss them, and, um, and we can see if we can come to some sort of uh, un, you know, answer for it. I'll see, try to come up with something. <laughs> If you ask something, if you ask me questions, yes, sir, you. Had a yes, yes, yes. Okay, so uh, number one is it's called the constitutional aspect. It's sometimes called the ontological aspect of image, and it has to do with human reason and moral agency. So Adam has reason and has moral, free moral agency. So he has, he has a mind, will, emotions. So that's the constitutional image. The second one is the ethical image. And the ethical image of God, or ethical aspect of image of God, includes knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That's the aspect that was utterly, entirely lost in the fall. So he retains his reason after the fall. Man retains his reason after the fall. He retains his will. He still has a will. He still has a mind. He still thinks. He still chooses. Um, but because th the ethical aspect of image of God is entirely lost, that has an effect on the way he functions in his reason and his choosing. Um, so his mind is at enmity with God, right? Romans 8. And his will, of course, is, is in rebellion against God. It chooses, chooses the evil. And then the third aspect of image is the functional aspect of image. And that has to do with the role or function man was to carry out. So that aspect brings into view his mandate or um, commission that's given to him in Genesis 1.28 and in Genesis 2.15, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we'll see more of what that, his mandate is. Any other questions? Well, yes, sir. There's a tendency to reduce to one aspect. And even what I've said in those three doesn't really say everything one can say about uh, image of God. Image brings into view the relation Adam has to God as son of God, right? Adam is the created son of God, right? Last ver verse of Luke chapter 3. 
But if you look at Genesis 5 and verse 1, it said, Adam had a son in his own image and after his likeness. So image has in view sonship. It's a father-son relationship, and that's what you have with Adam, too. So there are more aspects to image of God, but those are the three primary ones that you typically hear about. Are there questions? All right. Now, I, ha I had mentioned in, um, the image of God contains these aspects, but one other thing I want to, I want to bring up regarding the image is that the image of God in man, or man as image of God, is not a static thing. Okay? It's dynamic. It's not static. And it can advance from one stage to another stage. Um, and it can advance specifically from an earthly mode of image of God to a heavenly mode of image of God. Now here, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to look at verses 44 and 45, 1 Corinthians 15, and 47 through 49. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about bearing two different images, the image of Adam and the image of Christ as the new Adam. The first we might call the creation image, the Adamic image, image of Adam, and the second the consummation image the image of Christ as the new Adam. The first refers to the nature of man as originally created, and the second to the nature of man as glorified. So there's the natural image, earthly image, lower register image, our original nature at creation, and then there's the heavenly image, our final nature at the consummation, the upper register image. The natural image was oriented toward the heavenly image and was destined to obtain it. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 44. Now, Paul focuses especially on the body here because there was a crisis at Corinth where some of the members of the church in Corinth denied the future resurrection of the body. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, second half of the verse, if there is a natural body... There is also a spiritual body. Now, I want to argue that the, wor the word spiritual there refers to the Holy Spirit, and so it should be capitalized, spiritual body. It doesn't mean a non-physical body, an immaterial body. It is a physical body that has been heavenized by the Spirit. And then verse 45, thus it is written, and where is it written? Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The first man, Adam, notice that language. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Again, capital S, spirit, here. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And it's, who's, who is that last Adam? Christ, obviously, right? Christ is. So there's the first Adam, there's the protos, Adam, that's the Greek word Paul uses, the protological Adam, and then there is the eschatos Adam, that's the term Paul uses, the eschatological Adam. So first Adam, last Adam. What the first Adam became at creation is contrasted with what the last Adam became in his resurrection, which is the beginning of God's new creation. The contrast between the first and last is the contrast between creation and consummation, or creation and new creation. 
It's the contrast between two states of affairs. The first state of affairs established by God at creation, and then the last state of affairs at the consummation. So another term that Paul uses, and I think maybe this will be helpful, is Paul talks about the, the first state of affairs as the present age, and then the last state of affairs as the coming age. So there's this age, and then the age to come. So this state of affairs, and then the eschaton, the age to come. And in these two ages, there are two different kinds of life. There's the life that was given to the first Adam at creation, and there's the life that was given to the last Adam at the resurrection. There's the life of the present age and the life of the age to come. The life of the present age was conferred on Adam in Genesis 2-7, which Paul cited in verse 45, and the life of the age to come was conferred on Christ as the new Adam, the last Adam, in his resurrection from the dead. So there's the life of the first and the life of the last Adam. Or maybe we can put it this way. There's protological life, first Adam life, and then eschatological life, last Adam life. Man's life in the lower register, and then man's life in the upper register. Abundant life, eternal life. Okay? The creational image of God conferred on man in the beginning is connected to the life of this present age, earthly lower register life. But the final image of God conferred on Christ in his resurrection is connected to the life of the age to come, that heavenly upper register life. And since Adam is the father of all humanity, we inherit the creational image from him, the original image from him, including, unfortunately, all the effects that his sin had on that image we inherit from him. We bear the image of the first Adam. But if we are united to the risen Christ through faith, we will bear the image of the last Adam, the consummative image of God that Christ received in his resurrection. So we're going to bear that image at the end of the world, in the eschaton, when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead just as he was raised from the dead. Now look, if you're still in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 47. Here you can see it very clearly. Verse 47, the first man, that's Adam, was of the earth. Unfortunately, the ESV translates it from the earth. It should be of. It doesn't, it's not talking about the origin. It's talking about the nature of the person. He was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven. Again, it should be of heaven, not from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now here's the clincher, verse 49. Here are the two images. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Natural image, spiritual image, earthly image, heavenly image. Image of Adam, the first, image of Adam, the last, Christ. So at the resurrection, at the end of the age, we'll bear the image of the man of heaven. Now what happened to Christ in his resurrection is that the image of God that he bore as the new Adam was heavenized. It was glorified. It was eschatologized. He moved from, to go back to our model here, from the lower register to the upper register. He moved from lower register life to upper register life. That was the goal, the original goal of the image of God conferred on him in the beginning. 
Now, woven into his nature as the image of God was a heavenly orientation which moved him in an upward direction from life on earth, lower register life, to life in heaven, upper register life. The original nature of the image of God was not static, but dynamic and oriented toward that. Now, if you're in Genesis chapter 2, let's go to Genesis 2. Let's look at verse 7, Genesis 2, verse 7. Here you can see Genesis 2, 7 has two parts. The first part is the formation of man of the dust from the ground, and the second is the impartation to man of the breath of life. This is the verse that Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature or living being. So those are two distinct acts of one creative event. And the Spirit of God, Genesis 1-2, was the agent who brought it about. The Creator Spirit brought man into existence. The life-giving Spirit gave life to Adam. The first breath of the Spirit conferred on him the kind of life that belongs to here, the lower register, the life of the present age. So Adam is a lower register creature. He is formed of the dust of the ground. He's lower register creature. He was given a natural body for an earthly existence. Now, in the incarnation, that's when the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, became a man. He took on a human nature, including a natural body. Jesus shared in our earthly mode of existence in order to secure for us as fallen creatures a heavenly mode of existence, which he himself received in his resurrection as the second breath of the Spirit. There's the first breath of the Spirit and the last breath of the Spirit. So the second breath of the Spirit gave life to Christ as the new Adam, and that life is the life of the age to come, a consummate of life, heavenly life, It's not the life of the first creation, but of the new creation. So the spiritual body of imperishable glory that the last Adam received was the same promise and prospect of life that the first Adam forfeited by his disobedience. Now, regarding the second breath of the Spirit, I want to mention uh, just a couple of verses. You're all familiar with Ezekiel 37. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the Valley of Dry Bones, one of my favorite chapters uh, in scripture, the Valley of Dry Bones. Do you remember what God told Ezekiel uh, in Ezekiel 37? Let me read it to you, verses 9 and 10. God said to the prophet Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. The Hebrew word there is ruach, spirit, wind, breath, and it could be lowercase s or capital S, spirit. Prophesy to the breath, it's the same term used in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was moving over the face of the waters. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath, Ruach, came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now God himself interprets that, Um, for Ezekiel in verse 14, and he interprets the breath, Ruach, as the Holy Spirit, because here's what he says to Ezekiel in verse 14, I will put my spirit 
within you, and you shall live. So the inbreathing of the Spirit is what brings about the resurrection of the dead, just as the inbreathing of the Spirit in Genesis 2-7 gave life to Adam. Now here's the second text I want to mention regarding this breath of life. So there's the first breath, uh, first breath of the Spirit, last breath of the Spirit. The first conveys the first kind of life, the second the second kind of life, eternal life. Jesus said to his disciples, this is John 20, verse 21, and this is after his resurrection. So the risen Christ says to them, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? That's obviously a reference to Genesis 2-7, right? It's obviously referring back to that, but it also has Ezekiel 37 in view as well. Now, what is that about? Christ, who in his resurrection became life-giving spirit, gave the disciples a sign, a prophetic sign of what he would do at the end of the world when he returns. Now, the Holy Spirit was given to the disciples on the day of Pentecost, but the spirit that was given to them on that occasion was only a down payment. It's a down payment. It's not the full installment. It's the first installment. It's the partial payment. And that first installment, that down payment, is a guarantee that the rest will come, and the rest will come at the end of the world. That's when the second breath of the Spirit will come. So the Spirit will fully transform us when that happens into the image of the risen and glorified Christ. So, back to Paul's uh, saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, here's what that means. As we have borne the image of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So the first breath of the Spirit confers on man, um, conferring on man the original image of God, ordered him toward the second breath of the Spirit, which would bring that image to a consummate state of perfection. And that state of perfection was signified or symbolized in the weekly Sabbath which was a human copy or imitation of the divine original. The divine original, Genesis 2-2, and the human copy, Genesis 3-3, or 2-3, rather, 2-3. Okay, so in Genesis 2-2, the Sabbath describes what God did. God rested. In Genesis 2-3, it prescribes for man what he is to do. He must strive to enter that rest by completing the work that God gave him to do. And the probationary command of a covenant that God made with him, known as the covenant of works, in particular will tell him what he must do to enter God's rest. So the weekly Sabbath day was a sign that signified man's glorification by the second breath of the Spirit. It signified consummate of life and the glory presence of God in his heavenly temple. And even the sequence, this is really interesting, uh, was excited about this when I first discovered it, and every time I come back to it, it's interesting and excites me. The sequence of man's work followed by his rest indicated that by fulfilling the work God gave him to do, he could advance from an earthly state to a heavenly state, from the lower register to the upper register. The sequence of, what is the sequence? Work and rest. Work first, rest later. Work and rest. That sequence is absolutely crucial to the meaning, to the meaning of this sign, the weekly Sabbath. The principle of the Sabbath day is not simply a day of uh, a day of rest 
every seven days, one out of seven, whatever day you want, pick whatever day you want. That's not the principle. But the principle of the Sabbath is the fact that the rest only comes at the end of the completion of a work. That's essential to the significance of the Sabbath sign. Now here's what Gerhardus Foss says about that. The Sabbath brings this principle of the eschatological structure of history to bear upon the mind of man after a symbolical and typical fashion. It teaches its lesson through the rhythmical succession of six days of labor and one ensuing day of rest in each successive week. Man is reminded in this way that life is not an aimless existence, that a goal lies beyond. That was true before and apart from redemption. The eschatological is an older strand in Revelation than the soteric. In other words, the eschatology precedes soteriology, it precedes salvation. The so-called covenant of works was nothing but an embodiment of the sabbatical principle. There's an inseparable connection between the covenant of works and the Sabbath ordinance. Had its probation been successful, meaning the probation of the covenant of works, we'll look at that in a second, then the sacramental sign would have passed over into the reality it typified, and the entire subsequent course of history of the race would have been radically different. What now is to be expected at the end of this world would have, been f would have formed the beginning of the world course instead. So God's Sabbath in the upper register is his consummative rest, the eschaton, the omega point of history. And the weekly Sabbath is an earthly replica or copy or shadow or imitation of it that symbolizes the heavenly and prefigures the eschaton. The earthly communion with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden was not the highest mode of fellowship with God possible. And the ordinance of the weekly Sabbath pointed them toward that higher mode of communion. The Sabbath reminded Adam that he was a mountain-ascending worshiper. Remember, worship is an ascension into the presence of God, right? And that literally took place on holy mountains where the worshiper would ascend physically the mountain up into the presence, but that was symbolic of moving from lower to upper register. And the Sabbath given to Adam uh, reminded him that he was a mountain ascending worshiper destined to move from the lower region to the upper region if he fulfilled the work that God commissioned him to do. So it reminded him of his destiny, the eternal Sabbath. And it also reminded him that he wasn't there yet. Um, he was not living in the highest mode of existence possible. It reminded him his work was in incomplete. He's not dwelling in the heavenly temple, but he's confined to the lower register until he passes the probation. Now again, Meredith Klein puts it this way, the divine rest which characterizes the seventh day is the reign of the finisher of creation, enthroned in the invisible heavens in the midst of the angels, it is precisely the temporary exclusion of man from this heavenly Sabbath of God that gives rise to the two-register cosmological order. Why do you have two registers? Because Adam's not there, right? He's not in the eternal Sabbath, he's here. So the exclusion of man from the divine rest of God, that eternal Sabbath, gives rise to the two-register cosmology, but it also gives rise to the weekly ordinance of the Sabbath. At the consummation, we will enter God's eternal rest in the invisible heavens, and at that point, the weekly Sabbath will be obsolete, completely obsolete. The sign of the Sabbath will no longer be needed because we will have the full reality of what it foreshadowed. 
But until that day, the weekly Sabbath will continue as the sign of the eschaton, our eternal Sabbath rest in God's heavenly temple. What we're going to see when we look at the Lord's Day, and I probably won't get to this till Sunday, Sunday morning, this sermon Sunday morning is going to be on the Lord's Day. The weekly Sabbath, remember I made a big deal about the sequence of work and rest. The weekly Sabbath for Christians is no longer a day of rest that follows a time of work because the work has been finished by the last Adam. The Sabbath day is no longer the seventh day of the week, but the first day of the week because the probation has been passed, probation fulfilled. Last Adam passed the probation. He has fulfilled all that is necessary to bring creation to consummation. He's fulfilled it all. And so the sequence changes because the work is finished, and we'll have, I'll have more to say about that uh, later. Um, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, and while we're turning there, any questions? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Oh, no. No, no, no. He was still on earth, but his body had been heavenized in the resurrection. You're, I, I think what you're thinking of is his ascension. Are you thinking about his ascension? Yes. 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 That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Yes. 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 No, in a full sense, actually. He took on our full humanity. Yeah. Yeah. After the resurrection, yeah. So after the resurrection, he was no longer a lower register creature, because in that resurrection he receives the second breath of the spirit. So it's then that he's raised to upper register life. Okay, as the, as a man. Okay, he's all. I mean, he's also divine. He's the second person in the Trinity, <laughs> right? But as a human being, as second Adam, last Adam, he moves from lower register mode of existence to upper register mode of existence in his resurrection at the moment of his resurrection yes right yes god has been in the eschaton since genesis 2 2 right yeah. yes sir Really? Okay. And what a lot of what I hear you saying, and if you're going to Hebrews 1 and 2 later, let's wait. But um, if you're not, maybe you could address a little bit about the relation there, what, what the author of Hebrews is doing in, in 1 and 2, where he says, for a little, in the same sort of thing. A little while, lower than the angels. Yeah. Angelos. Yeah. Yes. There you go. Very good. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes, very good. So Hebrews uh, chapter 2, 
would be a good place to look for that, for a little while made lower than the angels, citing Psalm 8. That's correct. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We get the down payment. Yeah. You don't get the full uh, full enchilada until until the eschaton. Yeah. So Second Corinthians five five, and Ephesians one fourteen refer to the spirit gift that we have received as an ara bone, which means down payment, initial installment. Sometimes in the older translations, it's translated earnest, like earnest money, right? Yeah, earnest money. So. Yes. Yeah, well, it's... Um, right, right. So if we had it in full, if we had the fullness of it, then we would have glorified bodies. Yeah, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be glorified. This gentleman, I believe, had a had a question, yeah. or this. Oh, he, oh, you've recovered it. Okay. Sorry. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. So God finished His work, entered His rest. And then he gives man a weekly um, ordinance to observe that is a copy or replica of it. And so the weekly Sabbath that God gave to man um, points toward the eternal Sabbath that God entered, entered. It points upward, but it also is pointing forward to the eschaton because that's when we will enter that. So it's got an upward and future orientation. Weekly Sabbath does. Yes, sir. Do you see a connection also? You were talking about uh, Christ's work being fulfilling the, the mandate and therefore taking the, the Sabbath day into that uh, uh, eschaton mm-hmm. rest. Do you also right. see uh, a connection there between Christ as a first fruits of the new creative work of yes. God? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, very much so. Yes. And uh, so that's my Sunday morning sermon, <laughs> actually. So Christ being <coughs> raised as first, fr- first fruits of the resurrection harvest, 1 Corinthians 15, which is God's new creation, um, is the significance of the Lord's day. It's the day of resurrection. So there's so much symbolism that goes into the Lord's Day that it's, it's, uh, there are multiple layers and things that can be brought, brought to bear on it. But one way to look at it is the original Sabbath is given to um, Adam as a works and rest sequence because he's got to pass the probation to enter the rest. Um, but the Christian Sabbath, or the Lord's Day, is not a works and rest sequence because this new Adam has passed it, right? And so that was the point I was trying to make, just the change in, change in sequence. And the, the, proof, the, the proof that we know he's passed it is his resurrection, right? He's risen. So he's passed from, he's passed from earthly register existence to heavenly register existence. 
Okay, so we've, we've got more to do on um, the Garden of Eden, and I don't want to, we're, we're going to close it right at 8.30, right? Uh, what I want to do is to get us set up for the morning. Obviously, we didn't get to the book of Exodus tonight. We will cover that uh, tomorrow. Um, but what I want to do is to say a little bit more about the Garden of Eden, what exactly is Eden, because it, it's very much related to this. And uh, in my thinking, if, if we understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is laying the foundation that the rest of Scripture builds upon in its theology and its message as a whole, but also with regard to worship, then we have gone a, we have gone a long way in understanding um, worship, all that Scripture has to teach us about worship. And so uh, it may seem like we're in, in the garden still. We are in the garden still. And I don't know why I called it that. I thought afterwards, maybe people will think I'm talking about that hymn, In the Garden. <laughs> I call it, call it In the Garden. But it is in the garden, the, the Garden of Eden, different garden. So let me just say here, uh, look at Genesis 2.8. 2, let me make a couple of comments about Eden really quick in closing here. Okay, Genesis 2.8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. Now verse 10 says that a river was flowing out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now if that's the case, if there was a river flowing out of Eden then uh, are down from Eden, then Eden must have been up. It must have been elevated or high in elevation. And in fact, it was because later scripture tells us that Eden was a mountain. Eden was a mountain. Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14 calls Eden the holy mountain of God. Holy mount, holy mountain of God. It was a dwelling place for God by his spirit. It was a holy mountain temple. It was the first earthly house of God. And the summit of that mountain uh, was the most holy place. Now Genesis 3, 8 says that God walked to and fro in the Garden of Eden, which is the same verb later used to describe God's dwelling and presence and activity in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, for example. Now, the description of Eden in Genesis and in later Revelation makes it clear that Eden was a sanctuary. It was a holy mountain because the glory presence of the Lord rested on it. The Shekinah glory of the Spirit rested on the summit of Mount Eden. It was God's dwelling place, his resting place on earth. And his, rest, his dwelling place is his resting place. Remember that, Psalm 132? So think of Mount Sinai. We've, we all have Mount Sinai probably in our mind as a clear picture because, um, I mean, we've all seen the Charlton Heston movie and you've probably seen images of this. Mount Sinai, the glory cloud covered the summit of Mount Sinai. That's the same way you should think about Eden. Eden is a mountain. It was the summit of it was covered by God's Shekinah glory. Klein, Meredith Klein says, Eden was the sacred center of the earthly reproduction of the heavenly reality. Here in the garden of the Lord, the spirit glory that fills the heavenly temple was visibly manifested, theophany, visibly manifested on the mountain of God. 
the vertical cosmic axis linking heaven and earth. The revealed presence of the King of Glory crowning this sacred mountain marked the earth as a holy theocratic domain. Now think about it like this. We've got upper and lower registers here. The mountain of Eden was the vertical axis that linked the two realms. God's presence was on Mount Eden in a very special way, in a visible theophany, the Shekinah glory of God. So the whole earth, of course, we've already noted, was created as a cosmic temple, but the Garden of Eden was the most holy place of that temple. It was the holy of holies. And uh, we've got to do this. I'm going to put a little sketch, if I can get this off, <laughs> of the... Uh, Wow. That's, uh, there we go. Maybe it's the eraser. I'm not going to use the red again because it's not, you know, I'll just use it. I'll just leave it right there. Okay, so you have, <laughs> do this way. All right, you have the tabernacle. Okay, there's this outer court. And then inside of it is a sanctuary. And this is divided into two parts. This is the Holy of Holies. This is the holy place. This is the most holy place. And this is the outer court. This way, of course, is east. This is west. And that would be north and south. Okay, so... Why am I putting this up here? The Garden of Eden is at the summit of the mountain. Okay, It's at the top. It's the Holy of Holies. It's at the very top of the mountain. Moving upward in God, on God's holy mountain is moving westward in the tabernacle or temple, which is a microcosm of that mountain. So the westward movement is an upward movement. It's ascending God's mountain. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? So it, it was, the Garden of Eden was the prototypical holy of holies in the visible realm. Heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool, and the Garden of Eden was the concentrated focus of his glory presence. It was the place of most intimate communion and fellowship with God, and that's where God put Adam. Why? Because he was created for worship. He was created for fellowship with God. He was put there to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. He was created to have face-to-face -face communion with God in his glory presence. So worship is life in the presence of God. Worship is fellowship with God in the presence of God. And that's what Adam had on the mountain of Eden in the Holy of Holies, the Garden of the Lord. As the first worshiper, Adam drew near to God by ascending God's holy mountain. Literally, Eden was a mountain. He physically ascended the mountain. He drew near to God because God's at the summit of the mountain in the holy of holies. Adam ascended as worshiper, ascended the mountain of the Lord. Uh, and the garden was apparently on the summit of the mountain. There was a gate you had to pass through to enter into the garden, and Adam was the gatekeeper of that holy temple mountain. Adam was the gatekeeper of it. 
and his upward movement to the summit of the mountain was symbolic of his destiny to move from lower register to upper register, from worship on earth to worship in heaven. So Adam was, we could put it this way, Adam was a priest. He was a priest who worshipped before God in the first earthly temple, God's holy mountain temple of Edom. Now another connection we see in Genesis between Eden and the later tabernacle or temple is its eastward orientation. Eastward, that's, that's an E there. You can't see it because it's covered by lower register. But it's eastward orientation. The gates of entrance to the Garden of Eden was in the east, as was the gate of entrance to the tabernacle. Same orientation, gate at the east. The later high priest of Israel uh, serving in the tabernacle should be understood. Now I'm talking about in Exodus whenever the tabernacle is built and the priesthood is given to the um, Aaron and the family of Aaron and Aaron is consecrated as the first high priest and then you have subsequent high priests after him. Those high priests need to be understood as Adam-like figures. The high priest of Israel is an Adam-like figure serving in an architectural reproduction of the first earthly mountain of God, Eden. Now, whenever the high priest moved westward into the tabernacle, closer to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he was ascending God's holy mountain. He was moving upward toward the upper register. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, and he can only do that one day of year. Do you all remember what day that is? Day of Atonement, right. And not without uh, first being cleansed from sin by an atoning sacrifice. The sacrificial substitutionary death of the sin uh, offering opened the way for him to enter the most holy place. To enter the most holy place that's beyond the veil was to reach the summit of God's holy mountain. It was a symbolic return, a symbolic return to the Garden of Eden ascending the first holy mountain and reaching the summit, which was itself symbolic of moving from lower to upper registers. So that's why the high priest of Israel is an Adam-like figure. He is re-entering the place from which Adam was exiled, and he's prefiguring the last Adam, Christ, the ultimate high priest, who opens the way into the presence of God. Now remember what God. Uh, remember that when God drove Adam out of the Garden of Eden, what did He place at the gate down here? What did He place at the gate? Cherubim and what else? A flaming sword. Why? Notice, notice that it says to keep him out. Right? It placed cherubim and a flaming sword at the, at the east, at the gate, so that he could not come back in. The cherubim took over. Adam's role as the gatekeeper because he failed to slay the unholy serpent. He failed to keep the unholy out of the holy of holies, the most holy place, the serpent who entered the temple. So when Adam forfeited his priestly role, the guardianship of the holy site was then transferred to the cherubim who became the gatekeepers of the temple. Now that, of course, is why God instructed the Israelites whenever they built this thing, there's, this is a veil, right? This here, this thing here is a veil. When God instructed them to build the tabernacle, what did he tell them to put right there? Woven into the veil. There it is. The cherubim. 
and there were cherubim on this on this gate too, on this entrance too. Okay, he, he instructed them to put cherubim on the veil of the tabernacle. Why? To guard the way into the Holy of Holies. They were to guard, uh, to guard the Garden of Eden from defilement by unholy intruders. Those first cherubim were, these cherubim were to guard the uh, replica, the redemptive, recreated, symbolic tabernacle replica of that original one to guard it from defilement by way of holy intruders. So in the beginning, Adam was the prototypical high priest dwelling in the prototypical Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden, and that location was to be the site of his probationary test, which we will start with tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Okay, we'll pick it up there. Any questions? Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Right. That's exactly right. Genesis tw- or Revelation twenty-one two, and I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And does anyone know what Genesis, uh, no, <laughs> Revelation 21.3 says? Revelation 21. Oh, and I heard, yeah, and I heard a voice from the throne saying, Yes, the, the tabernacle of God, right, is the word that's used there. The, tent, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God. That's how the ESV has it. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. There it is. That's the upper lower registers becoming one, right? The two become one. That's the consummation. And, of course, when you look at the, the way um, paradise in the consummation is described, uh, it's described in terms of Edenic temple mountain imagery, right? The river of life is flowing out of it. The tree of life is there, and so on. And we'll come back to that uh, tomorrow morning. Any other questions? I hope this is helpful in uh, giving a framework for understanding uh, worship. Uh, Please, if you do have any questions, just uh, write them down or ask me at any time, and during the conference, feel free to, to ask. Why don't we close in prayer? That'd be okay. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for creating the heavens and the earth, all things visible and invisible. And we thank you, Father, for sending Jesus Christ as the new and last Adam to accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish and to bring us into your heavenly temple dwelling by his spirit who unites us to him. Father, we thank you for creating us in your image and after your likeness and for recreating us in Jesus Christ in your image and knowledge and righteousness and true holiness to have communion and fellowship with you, to be worshipers of you, and to ascend your holy mountain through Jesus Christ in virtue of our union to him who has indeed ascended that holy mountain and is seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. Father, we thank you that Christ has opened the way for us 
a new and living way to enter into the most holy place. And we pray that you would help us to understand what Scripture teaches us about worship and above all that you would make us faithful worshipers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.